Welcome to Cannabis Science Today. This is the podcast where we explore cannabis as a plant and how it can be used as medicine. My name is Emily Feda, and I will be your guide as we converse with scientists, physicians, and clinicians about cannabis and other psychedelics. We are back for season three, and the show is continuing to evolve. I really believe in taking a holistic approach to understanding cannabis and psychedelic medicine, and all of the elements matter. Everything from the soil and the pesticides used to cultivate plants, to how these medicines affect our body chemistry, to the set and setting in which we use and integrate this medicine and these experiences. I've been listening to your feedback, and in this upcoming season, we're still going to be digging into the chemistry and biology of these plants, but we're also going to be spending more time exploring the psychological realm so we can better understand how these medicines affect our brain and our behavior. So stay tuned. I really hope this season pushes the edges of how we understand cannabis and psychedelic medicine. As always, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to us on Instagram, cannabis underscore science underscore today. Um, Also, I'd love to hear from you via a five-star review on iTunes if you're enjoying the show. And finally, if you have any guest suggestions or you just want to say hi, you can email me, cannabisciencetoday at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I'm so excited to share this upcoming season with you. Today, we are featuring Dr. Donald Land, who is a chemistry professor at UC Davis and has been working in cannabis since 2010, when he founded a cannabis testing laboratory in California. He has served as chief scientific consultant for Steep Hill and has also consulted for Front Range Biosciences. In this episode, Dr. Land explains how compounds in cannabis change as molecules bind together and separate at different phases along the supply chain. He shares what cannabinoids you'll find in a cannabis plant when it's raw versus when it's heated versus when it's been aged and exposed to air. We also discussed the different medicinal effects that we might experience when we consume cannabis through different methods, such as inhaling cannabis versus eating it. We talk about cannabinoids all of the time on this podcast and their medicinal benefits, so this is such a great primer episode to actually understand what a cannabinoid is on a molecular level and also how cannabinoids change very naturally when the plant is going through these different phases um, from when it's being grown to when it's actually finally being consumed in its final form. Don, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Cannabis Science Today. And I would love to, to start by just hearing a little bit more about your scientific journey and how it led you to your current work with, with cannabis. Sure. Uh, so I've been a professor of chemistry uh, and forensic science and biotechnology since 1991. And uh, in 2010, a local entrepreneur wanted to open a cannabis testing laboratory in the Davis area. Uh, and I'm a professor at UC Davis, so it was nearby. We had a mutual friend who suggested he talk to me about it. And uh, he hired me as a consultant to, te- to set up the lab. Um, through a couple of years of working together, uh, my business partner um, from 
UC Davis, also from the chemistry department, Reverend Dr. Kimron DeCesar. And I uh, settled and ended up with the, all of the assets of that initial company. We merged that with uh, the company that was first to market in the cannabis testing space, and that was Steep Hill. And they had opened uh, eh, about a year or almost two years before we had, but there were still very few laboratories uh, available to people at that time. There were no regulations requiring testing of any type, so it was all voluntary. Um, we had a, uh, a good kind of run in the early days, in particular, uh, the, the lab that I opened, it was actually in West Sacramento, not Davis, but it was nearby, just down the road. And that lab, we were able to expand the palette of cannabinoids and terpenoids that were being tested for in our lab. So we got a lot of, uh, of business from people who were trying to develop new products in one way or another, whether they be new uh, strains of flowers or, you know, infusions into various food type items. So we learned a lot about um, what people were trying to do. We learned a lot about what worked, what didn't work. And so I've, that was uh, 2013 was when the original company, which was called Halent, H-A-L-E-N-T, which is now, you know, gone. Um, that that uh, company merged in the middle of 2013 with Steep Hill and we I've been working with Steep Hill since then. I also, and I'm a consultant there, um, and I'm still a professor at UC Davis. So the, being a professor at UC Davis is the primary thing that I do, but I consult for several companies. There's a, uh, a cannabis and hemp seed and seedling production company, and I work with a genetics team at that company uh, to provide genetic tools to determine ahead of time which which uh, seeds you want to plant and which ones you don't kind of thing or which plants are going to give you the product distribution that you want at the end whether that be hemp or cannabis and then uh, I'm working for another company that's a vertically integrated company that is going to make uh, purified compounds extracted from cannabis uh, pure, pure to the point where they could be used in clinical trials by pharmaceutical developers and things like that. So that's kind of a history of who I am and where I am. Thanks. And I would love to just jump right in because on this podcast, we talk about we talk about cannabinoids all of the time. We talk about CBD and THD, THC, and our, our latest episode is all about CBN, and we talk about the medicinal value of these various compounds. But what we haven't really talked about is, you know, how the, the process that these different compounds go through um, and, and how a raw cannabis plant is very different in the molecular structures that you would find in the, the chemical composition within a raw cannabis plant versus a heated cannabis plant. Um, so I'm wondering if you'll take us on that journey of, yeah, um, yeah the, the different cannabinoids that we find and, and how they change and sh shape shift um, as, you know, the plant moves along this supply chain essentially to be made into medicine yeah sure so um 
let me let me start by the chemistry that occurs in the plant as these things are produced really quickly. All right. So the uh, there's a critical step where two molecules that have uh, some uh, phosphate attached to one of them to provide some energy for the process come together and make what's usually referred to as the mother of all cannabinoids, the cannabigerolic acid, mm -hmm. uh, CBGA. Uh, CBGA has uh, only one ring in its chemical structure, whereas THC, for example, has three, and CBD has two, uh, and CBC has two, but they're arranged differently than for CBD and so on. So once the CBGA is produced, there are the possibility, at least, in the genetic, uh, in the DNA for that plant, to produce enzymes which will uh, uh, convert the CBGA into THCA. Again, that would be tetrahydrocannabinolic acid or CBDA, cannabidiolic acid or CBCA, cannabichromine, acid, uh, chromenic acid. And in the plant, all of this is going on with acid forms. It goes on in parts of cells that are kind of isolated from the rest of the, the plant biology because these substances are not really soluble in water. And so they go on in, in uh, molecular or biological structures that are able to deal with these nonpolar substances, the cannabinoids and terpenoids. Mm -hmm. All right. So, so the first thing is, is there everything there that needs to produce CDGA? And again, there's a number of genes responsible for that, but the, the inputs at the top of that process to make CBGA are used by lots of different processes in the organism. And so if the organism is able to stay alive and be reasonably healthy, those aspects are usually intact. So forming CBGA is, uh, again, if, if all of those genes are there and they're all working right, CBGA forms. Then the next question is, are there enzymes to convert the CBGA into something else? And those are called the THCA synthase gene and the CBDA synthase gene, and then also a CBCA synthase gene. Of those genes, CBA, CBCA synthase gene, anything that we've ever seen doesn't produce much. So really there's only two possibilities, or three possibilities. One possibility is the plant produces CBGA, but it doesn't have the enzymes or the genetics for the enzymes to convert them to anything else, in which case you get a buildup of CBGA in the plant material and the flowers in particular. If there's a THCA synthase gene, then it produces THCA from the CBGA, and the CBGA never builds up, and it stays at a relatively low level, maybe a, a, a half a percent to a couple percent in the, in the mature flowers by weight. Um, if if there is no THCA synthase or CBDA synthase or CBCA synthase to convert it, then the CBGA builds up to in the 15% by weight range, so a significant amount. Otherwise, if there are any active 
cannabinoid synthase genes, any of those three, then the CBGA does not build up beyond a, a certain point. Okay, the, and let me ask whether the plant has this a particular enzyme or not, or whether it doesn't have an enzyme at all, is purely genetics, or does it have? Yes, okay. yes. So, um, it, so for these particular genes, mm-hmm. what uh, the geneticists call a presence absence effect. In other words, if the okay. gene is it gets activated and works. If the gene oh. is not present, it can't. And so it's it's either there, in which case that product is produced, or it's not there and that product is not produced. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's not always true of genes. Sometimes genes have to be turned on or off by ex- some external stimulus, usually some kind of stress caterpillars eating it or aphids eating it and sometimes the response is different mm. whether it's or aphids eating it most of that variability in in defense response to stresses uh, a lot of that is terpenoids and so there are some terpenoids that would show up only if caterpillars fed on the plant and not if aphids put up fed on the plant for example. oh interesting so the terpenoids yeah. would come as to protect the plant or to protect even that like, particular yeah. enzyme so it could still exactly. be expressed. Wow. It's a plant version of our immune system. And so there are different aspects to that response. Uh, in fact, the production of cannabinoids is believed to have evolved to protect the plants from uh, UV radiation from the sun. They absorb a lot of UV. So all of this system is basically an immune response or a stress response from the plant to, you know, grow in whatever environments they were evolving. So, yeah, it's quite interesting. And that, that variability is very similar to humans as well, depending mm-hmm. on what a human immune system is trying to fight off. It'll produce different responses. There are some kind of automatic responses that are very general. We call that our innate immune system in humans. And that kicks in right away as soon as there, there's some kind of an affront that stimulates a chemical signal from some of our cells that they're in trouble. Um, whereas later uh, responses by human immune system would include the specific antibodies that have been tuned to respond to that particular threat. Kind of similar in plants, but very different processes. And this, the cannabinoids and terpenoids some of them are produced <coughs> excuse me some of those are produced uh if the gene is there and kind of regardless of anything else it's automatically on some of them are are produced or in fact the the stimulation of the um what we call the expression of a particular gene can be altered so the same gene under different stresses might produce two different terpenes or different ratios of terpenes. It's really fascinating. Wow. And at what phase in the plant growth does this CBGA begin to convert to whether it's THCA or CBDA? Yeah, it, it kind of happens throughout the, the process. So we've, we've done experiments where we measured the very first leaves right out through the, you know, after harvest and you know, plants that are are beyond kind of ripe, beyond where you would. Hire. So we followed that 
And it turns out that, uh, so these, these enzymes that take CBGA and convert it into THCA or CBDA, those enzymes um, are not 100% efficient. So they don't take every CBGA molecule and make it into a THCA molecule. Okay. CBDA molecule. They make a few other things. And the system that feeds into that don't make just CBGA. They make CBGVA and and CBGPA and and other compounds that are related depending on what the inputs are. Mm -hmm. So the enzymes, we often talk about enzymes as a lock and key where the, the, uh, the receptors or excuse me, where the, uh, the enzyme binds to a very specific chemical and only converts that chemical to start into some final product. But it's, it's often quite a bit, uh, less specific so that there are, are a range of molecules that will fit into the enzyme and be converted maybe in similar ways, but not necessarily into uh, related products that uh, reflect what the difference in the inputs was. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that will become that will come become important when we start talking about the difference between hemp and cannabis. Right? Okay, great. So it would be fair to say, you know, you have. Um, the vegetative cycle of the plant and then the flowering cycle of the plant. And let's say each week um, that the plant is growing or being cultivated, that it's increasing um, its levels of THCA or CBDA depending on what enzymes the plant has. Yes, absolutely correct. So when you're kind uh, of at the final harvest, that's when you're really at that maximized level. Exactly. So the, the flowers produce uh, lots more trichomes. Trichomes are kind of the specialized secretion glands on, on the petals of flowers and on the leaves that produce the trichome, excuse me, that produce, the, the trichomes produce cannabinoids and uh, terpenoids in an oily solution that, again, isn't very soluble in water. And so they they produce those things into these external glandular trichomes and you can actually see these little reservoirs of these chemicals uh, and the trichomes on the various uh, leaf and petal structures. The Mm -hmm. flowers produce significantly more than the sugar leaves. And the sugar leaves are the ones kind of interspersed with the flowers and and have lots of trichomes on them and are smaller. And then there are the fan leaves, which are the bigger ones that are, mostly produced uh, during the vegetative stage, those have very few trichomes in general. And so the, the, as the, the plant matures, it goes through its lifetime producing small amounts of the various cannabinoids and terpenoids. And they, some of them build up over time, but the real buildup and the real production starts when the flower petals start to form and they, because they have a very high density of trichomes. And mm-hmm. so they make a lot more of these essential oils that are in the trichomes. Okay. Wow. So I'm very excited to ask you about the different potential medicinal properties of the, these compounds when they're in this acidic form versus the heated form. But but let's let's kind of go through this process first. So let's imagine we're in a grow facility. The plant has just been harvested. So um, we're we're looking at a raw cannabis plant where either the tea, you know these 
cannabinoids in their acidic form have been produced. And then this plant is either going to go off to a consumer where they're going to um, you know, put it in a joint and heat it up with a flame, or it's going to go into a manufacturing facility where it's going to be heated at a very high temperature and then turned into a tincture. So can you take us on that next part of the journey? What's happening? Yeah, um, yeah what's happening chemically when the plant is getting heated? So, so uh, one thing of interest, so there are a number of genetic factors that control the relative ratios of cannabinoids. Um, in terms of if I've got a high THC plant, it produces mostly THCA, and then there are compounds related to that. The ratios of those different cannabinoids is fixed pretty much throughout the life of the plant. So if the ratio of THC to CBD is 30 to 1 in the early leaf, it's going to be pretty close to 30 to 1 in the final product. Okay. So, so re- almost regardless of when you harvest it, you will have that same ratio. But obviously, if you wait until the plants are optimized and, you know, that they've produced all of the stuff that they're going to produce um, in, in theory, and that, you know, at this point, stuff is just t- starting to decrease as the, the trichomes and plants age and go into senescence and preparation to die off because they're mm-hmm. an annual. Um, and so regardless of when you harvest, you will get the same ratios. So you can't take a, a plant that has only a THCA synthase and expect to harvest it or treat it in some way with light or temperature or whatever and convert it into a, a plant that produces CBD. That's not going to happen. Right. You can maximize the production of all of the things in, its, in that particular plant spectrum. So. Let's, let's start with uh, uh, plants that are high THCA, right? So again, the plant produces the acids. THCA, the acid form of THC, does not bind to the receptors that cause the psychoactivity and the distraction from pain and, and the appetite enhancement and all the, uh, uh, and that there may be more than one receptor involved in all of those processes because we know that the cannabinoids and the terpenoids bind to lots of different receptors and, and more strongly or less strongly. They bind to lots of different proteins and enzymes with different efficacies, again, for the different molecular structures. Um, so, so with THCA, that the, it has a carboxylic acid group attached to uh, one of the rings. And that is a, a, a that part of the molecule is very different from the neutral THC, which does not have that group there. And so mm-hmm. that changes the way and the, the likelihood of the two different molecules binding. So THCA does not produce psychoactive activity. You have to heat it. When you heat it, or there's a couple other things you can do. You can put it in acid. So if it's in your stomach for a long time, it can convert from THCA to mostly THC. If you heat it above a certain temperature, um, it converts most of the THCA to THC and releases carbon dioxide gas that floats off. Um, And that's what usually is called decarboxylation or decarb or in more general terms, activation of Mm -hmm. that. Uh, so in, if you just eat raw plant material, you don't generally get high. 
Now, there's always a small amount of THC that is already converted by being stored in the trichomes. So that happens really slow. But for freshly harvested cannabis, there's, you know, often 20 to 100 times more of the acid than the neutral. Mm-hmm. So raw plant material is, is a medicine. Now, the acid cannabinoids, one of the most important for me, aspects of acid cannabinoids is it, it appears that virtually all of the acid cannabinoids reduce inflammation. Uh, so there was a, a pretty good study published uh, a few years ago now even where they tried THC neutral, CBD neutral, CBG neutral, THC acid, CBD acid, and CBG acid all in an assay to uh, evaluate the activity of an enzyme called cyclooxygenase. In fact, there are, there are about five different cyclo- cyclooxygenase enzymes in humans that are part of our inflammation response. So when inflammation is, is uh, signaled, so certain signals in the body say, hey, we should activate the, uh, the immune response the cyclooxygenase enzymes are uh, are impacted. So those produce a, a something. One of the things they do is produce something called prostaglandin, and prostaglandin is a key signaling molecule that tells other cells to activate their immune response. And so it's a big part of what we call a immune cascade. So there's five of these cyclooxygen enzymes that do slightly different things. All mostly related to whether it's a a, a recent, what they call acute inflammation, or whether it's something that's been going on a long time, which is chronic and so on. So this study that I'm talking about, they did on cyclooxygenase one and two, and they measured the activity of those enzymes in an assay when exposed to various cannabinoids. And the acid cannabinoids are really, really good at inhibiting the production of prostaglandins by cyclooxygenase one and two. Mm. And probably part of the, the overall mechanism for why they're such good anti-inflammatories, but there's probably a whole bunch of other things that go on as well. Yeah, but- and actually we have, um, we have an episode, episode eight, um, where we interviewed a researcher from Israel and they were doing really um, interesting preclinical studies on how T, I, I believe it was THCVA, um, could prevent uh, colon cancer cell growth, essentially. Yeah, but, yeah. Yeah, but I think that's such a key part of understanding, yeah, that this medicinal, um, yeah, the plant has different different compounds and therefore different right. uh, medical effects when it's in these different forms. So I think that's yeah, super so key. Just, just to, to do a final summary of that, the THC and CBD were not great at inhibiting the enzyme cyclooxygenase 1 or 2. Okay, but there's been other studies where they do overall have some anti-inflammatory effects. But in this particular assay, the uh, the acid forms and actually CBG neutral also were the best inhibitors of these cyclooxygenase enzymes. And if that was all that was involved, they would be the better anti-inflammatory. But if you use cannabis, you can extract it, you can extract it into olive oil, right? So 
the recipe I use is I take some buds. I don't even grind them up. I, I just kind of crumble them a little bit into a, into a jar, put olive oil over them, never heat them. And if you leave that sit for a day or if you want to agitate it and leave it sit for a couple of hours, the, the olive oil or coconut oil, or you can use any oil, but olive oil and coconut oils are, have medium chain triglycerides with help, which help the absorption, which maybe we'll get into later. But um, you can extract those, those acid cannabinoids into the olive oil and just take teaspoon or so of the, the olive oil a couple times a day and get good anti-inflammatory action. Oh, okay. That's a great pro simple. tip. Yeah. Simple, so, right? you just a great put in enough, and it, it always ends up somewhere close to about 10 milligrams of acid cannabinoids per milliliter of, of liquid. And so a teaspoon is five milliliters. So that's like 50 milligrams. And are of, you doing that with a bud that you're purchasing at a dispensary that has gone through like the aging process, you know, the drying and curing process? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So is there, I guess that's another thing that I'm curious about because when, I, when I'm thinking of these raw, you know, these acidic cannabinoids, I, I guess I'm thinking there must be some difference between you, you harvest a fresh cut cannabis plant and, and then of course, the, the growing process is that then you let it sit and you dry it and you cure it before yeah. sending it to a dispensary. So is there a change in those um, acidic cannabinoids in, in even the aging process prior to the heating? No, not much. Okay. Um, so there is continuously a small amount of conversion from the acid to the neutral over time. But over... So we did experiments back in the old days where we would take some cannabis, we'd measure it, we'd, we'd make sure it was nicely homo uh, homogenized so that every time we went in to, to test the same little batch of it, we'd get the same results. And then we took some of that and we stored it in a refrigerator, we stored it in a freezer, and we stored it in, uh, in a garage in Sacramento, California, which probably was exceeding 120 Fahrenheit yeah, sure, in the summers, time. right? Yeah. Um, and we, we would go back and measure that stuff over and over. And in the freezer, no change mm -hmm. for months and months and months and months. So we, we couldn't measure much of a change in, in just a regular old freezer. Mm -hmm. In a regular old refrigerator, <coughs> over the course of many months, we would see small changes, but very small. In the garage, right? So in other words, just kind of store it at ambient um, in a, an environment where it was 50 degrees during the day in some parts of the year and 120 and some, <laughs> some others, right? Uh, we would see about a third of the THCA convert to THC roughly over the course of a year. Oh, interesting. Okay. There is some. Mm -hmm. It's not huge. Not huge. Okay. And we'll, we'll talk but, about so that. So at any rate, so. Yeah, yeah we'll talk we about that more because I do want to talk about the aging process in, in more detail. Huh? But, but. Before we go there, okay, so I just want to summarize and make sure I'm understanding this correctly. But so I'm a human and I have this endocannabinoid system uh, with all of these different receptors inside of my body. And I buy some cannabis at a dispensary and I take the, I take the cannabis in one method. I'll do the method that you suggested where I just mix it with olive oil and keep it raw and okay. just take a little teaspoon of it. And I take a serving of that and then let's say later in the day, I take the same cannabis, but I decide to light up a joint. Is the cannabis, we have the exact same cannabis, but when it hits my body through these two different methods of consumption, um, is it binding to different receptors in my body? 
Yep, absolutely. Wow. Can you talk more yeah. about that? It's so yeah, it's true. So, so anytime you heat uh, these acid cannabinoids above about 100 C or, you know, 210 or 220 Fahrenheit, they start to uh, decarboxylate. Carbon dioxide gas kind of bubbles out of it. Sometimes you'll see this in a, you know, if you've got a, a wax or a shatter or some other kind of essential oil, you can see these bubbles forming the first time you heat it. Um, and you can tell when it's done by just waiting for the bubbles to stop, right? But mm -hmm. at any rate, um, when you heat it, if it, the, it loses this carboxylic acid group and the, the group that's left behind does not have the same polarity or ability to, to uh, bind to other things like receptors and enzymes and stuff. And so they bind to a completely different subset in uh, a completely different way. And it's only THC in its neutral form that interacts with the CB1 human receptor protein, mm -hmm. which is responsible for, uh, or at least believed, and has been for decades now, believed to be the the enzyme the uh, the receptor that's responsible for starting the cascade of effects that leads to what we sense from smoking cannabis or vaping cannabis or heating it in butter and then putting it into brownies or all of those methods that heat it. The reason you do it is to convert it into the neutral form, which binds to a whole different set of proteins and receptors than the the acid. And it, only after doing that do you get the psychoactivity um, and the stimulation of appetite and uh, the distraction from pain and the uplift in, in mood and all that kind of stuff. Now, the acid forms don't distract you from pain. They actually often reduce or remove the source of the pain, which is almost always inflammation. So very different. And uh, my, my partner, uh, Reverend, Dr. Kimron de Caesar, he's he's a pharmacognosist, which means he studies uh, the plant medicines from the basis of understanding what chemicals are giving the properties that humans have valued for, you know, in some cases centuries, if not even longer, millennia when it when it comes to cannabis. Uh, why do why did humans uh, choose and and continue to use these particular plants as medicines. And he looks at what the chemical compounds are within these plants. And he, he looks at not just the U S obviously it's, there's, there's Chinese herbal medicines, there's uh, indigenous peoples in the Americas, South America in particular, um, in Jamaica, there are another set there are hundreds of years old and, and so on and so forth. And so he, he understands those different things. And he's very, very fond of saying that, cannabis is multiple forms of medicine in one so you can take it in its in its nascent raw form and you get one set of medicinal properties you heat it you get a different set of medicinal properties and in some cases you can do other things like age it and get yet another set of compounds that uh, come in and bind to different proteins and and receptors and have different effects mm -hmm. it's an incredible array of medicinally relevant compounds that you have some control over selecting. So it's, it's a fantastic plant. And that's why humans have 
carried along with them whenever they found it. Whatever cultures have come into contact with cannabis have carried it with them for the remainder of their existence. And uh, we can track it back tens of thousands of years at this point. Mm-hmm. Wow. So I'd also love to hear more about what happens. Um, you know, we talked about these two, the smoking versus having the raw plant, but what happens when let's assume that we are going to heat the plant, but there's so many different ways to decarboxylate the plant and then consume it. So of course, you know, on the market right now, we're seeing uh, you can just smoke the flower, you can consume it through an edible where then it's absorbed through your your stomach acid and then goes through your digestive system or, you know, a tincture for instance, which, you know, you consume sublingually. What, what is happening, you know, within the endocannabinoid system and what is happening to, you know, how, how are these molecules binding to one another um, Mm -hmm. through these different methods of consumption? Sure. Yeah. So, so, um, obviously when you get it from the plant, that's what the plant produces. And depending on where it was with regard to sunlight and temperature, there will be small amounts of the neutrals already present, but not significant. And generally speaking, not enough to, to worry about, uh, in most cases. When you heat it, if you heat it high enough for long enough, all of the acid forms will disappear. Depending on the conditions when you're heating it, you can get most of that, those acid cannabinoids to convert into neutral cannabinoids, right? So THCA to THC. But depending on the conditions, you can get a a more efficient or less efficient conversion. And so sometimes if you heat it too long, you will get some Delta-8 THC and some CBN uh, in there as well, which will bind to receptors and proteins differently and get different effects. So CBN is quite often referred to as being less psychoactive than THC. So there is some, 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 uh, some psychoactivity that one notices in, in terms of mood and, and focus and things like that. Um, but it's, it's a very different feel to it. A lot of people say it, it's more gritty than a THC high. So there's some edge to it that's not as pleasant, I guess. But the one of the things CBN that, is what you're saying? CBN, a lot CBN of people edge. have a, a little edginess, a little more edginess from cbn than they, they even get with thc it, okay it varies from person to person so uh you know and does it my, bind as as the research stands it does bind to that cb1 receptor which is this receptor yeah, so, psychoactivity yeah we 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 often talk as if binding either occurs or doesn't occur right. but in reality both so both cbn and thc and in fact, CBD all bind to the CB1 receptor, but they bind with different affinities. Mm. And what that means is, so, so binding with different affinities. So THC fits into the, this CB1 receptor in such a way that, um, well, let me, let me just back up and say, receptors basically have a little piece of protein that sticks outside the cell and is ready to attach to the right molecule coming in and and to detect the presence of that molecule, whatever it be. In this case, CB1, there are endogenous endocannabinoids that bind to to CB1. THC binds to CB1. 
THC binds to CB1 about 100 times more strongly than CBD does. And it's just that difference in the binding affinity. And what, what really probably is happening is when THC binds to the outside part of the receptor, the receptor then has what we call a transmembrane portion, the part that goes from the outside of the cell to the inside of the cell. And that has a structure to it. And then there's an inside flap of protein that holds on to other enzymes that are going to be either released or stimulated to go start the intercellular processes of getting high, getting distracted from pain, being more, uh, more aware of your appetite and the flavor of foods and all that kind of stuff. So these cascades then go out from that initial signal. But the strength with which that, that THC binds changes the structure and of the of the protein going through the membrane and affects the way that the cell is stimulated and so when cbd comes in and also binds it doesn't bind as tightly and so the structure of the protein isn't changed as much as it goes through from the outside of the cell to the inside of the cell so the effects inside this the cell are different so when endocannabinoids bind to the cb1 receptor they have a, a certain response that has evolved in our system when THC binds to the CB1 uh, receptor, it has a different response. And when CBD binds to that same receptor, it has yet a different response. And same thing with CBN. When CBN binds to that receptor, structures aren't quite the same, slightly different effects on the inside, and that leads to a slightly different cascade of, of events that leads to us saying, oh, this feels different. Of course, of course. Yeah, and it's so interesting to hear about it from or what what's happening at the cellular level because this is stuff we say anecdotally all of the time. Right. Like CBD right. offsets the high. Like, right. um, but of course, of course, that makes so much sense based on these these binding principles that you're talking about. Yep. Yep. Indeed. So, yeah. So so next, I would love to also talk about terpenoids, and if you could take us on. A similar journey on on how do terpenoids do they change kind of in their molecular structure when they're in their the cannabis plant is in their raw form or in their heated form do they offer different medicinal benefits based on um, how they show up? Yeah, so terpenoids. Um, so so first of all, there are two terms: terpenes and terpenoids. Most of the chemicals produced by cannabis and hops and other uh, um, terpene-rich plants, basil is another one, thistle, uh, uh, nettle, there's a bunch of different plants that produce lots of, of terpenoids. And in particular, those plants are the most represented of medicinal plants in, in you know the cultural histories all across the world, things that produce lots of terpenoids. So lots of different terpenoids bind to lots of different proteins, enzymes, receptors, uh, and we've evolved together. So the, the endocannabinoid system in mammals started to evolve at the Cambrian explosion 500 million years ago, before there were fish. Wow. They're basically just sponges and jellyfish and trilobites, maybe. I don't know. But uh, so, so the basis of that system that we talk about as the endocannabinoid system started 500 million years ago. And so cannabis 
and us are about the same age. It's millions, you know, uh, of years going back to, to as these things got more and more complex. And so our ancestors, our, our archaeological ancestors evolved with the archaeological ancestors of cannabis and other terpene-rich plants. But so the, the, there's, there's different kinds of terpenes. There's the terpenes and then terpenoids. Terpenoids means that the terpenes that were originally formed have gone through a transformation often in the organism, but it can be through heating external when, when we're curing it or heating it, but they oxidize a little bit. And then they're called terpenoids. Mm. And they have slightly different chemical structures, very different interactions, again, with the, the proteins and enzymes in our body. So terpenes are what give cannabis the aroma. So it turns out that the way we smell is that in our nose and sinuses, we have lots of receptors that are slightly different from one another. And they grow in kind of a, a pattern. And when we inhale vapors from you know, air or whatever that has something that interacts with those receptors, we call it a smell. And it's the pattern of where, which parts of our nose and sinuses are affected that our brain recognizes to differentiate one smell from another. And so that's why alpha pinene smells piney. And it actually, not only do we smell it as being different from beta pinene, it binds to slightly different uh, biomolecules in us, the enzymes and receptors. So we smell it as being different. And alpha pinene is a really good bronchodilator. Mm -hmm. so in fact, I, eh, well, I'm not going to say that. Um, it is such a good bronchodilator that almost everybody who walks into a pine forest notices this uplift because our bronco tubes and, and lungs are, are dilated to the point where they're getting more oxygen in and we get a little bit of a, an uplift just because we're getting a little more oxygen because alpha pinene is clearing out our, our airways to absorb more. Mm -hmm. And some of that gets translated into the cannabis. Right. Uh, so for the most part, heating uh, terpenoids in cannabis does not change them significantly. There can be a small amount of oxidation, but for the most part, not much. Mm -hmm. What is more important is alpha pinene, limonene, which smells like lemon or orange or citrus, actually limonene. Uh, if you take orange peel and as you're peeling an orange, what you smell is mostly limonene. The essential oils of oranges is mostly in the peel, and it's about 70% limonene. Mm -hmm. That limonene is also produced by some strains of cannabis and gives it a very citrusy, lemony, or sometimes orangey flavor. There's, a, there's several of those. But those, those are what we call, the, the ones that smell intensely are what we call monoterpenes. Mm -hmm. and, and, yeah, and they, only, they are very volatile. So when you... When you cure cannabis, if you've got a lot of air motion to get rid of the water, you're also getting rid of some of those volatile terpenes. So the longer you cure or the longer that the cannabis sits around, the more of those light terpenes that give it the aromas, and that's a big part of the flavor when you ingest or you know, smoke it or vape it or whatever, those things start to go away 
those go away pretty quickly. They do all have slightly different binding effects to different, uh, you know, proteins and receptors and stuff. And depending on what's there, and again, that's largely determined by the genetics, but to some extent also determined by the stresses that the plant have ex has experienced to produce other terpenes, perhaps. Um, the smell will change with time. So when it's fresh and in the field and it's moist, you smell it and it smells one way. As it cures, that smell changes a little bit as the lighter thing. So alpha pinene uh, goes away quick. Limonene goes away pretty quick. Myrcene, another piney smelling, more of a, a musty piney smell, like a dank smell is myrcene. Myrcene goes away quick. Um, but then there are some bigger terpenes that are important. Sorry, when you say they go away, do you mean that the scents go away or they the evaporate. actual... The, the, the chemical compounds evaporate. The chemical compounds evaporate. Wow. They, okay. they go off with the water, just like the water is evaporating as you're drying the plants. The, okay. Anything volatile is going away. So you lose some of that. Mm -hmm. And so it, there's always... And, and, you know, good producers have probably for each of the strain that they produce, they have played around with the, the conditions that get it to the right state of dryness without losing too much terpene, terpene. right? Mm -hmm. But it's the trade-off. The more water you want to get rid of, the more terpenes you're also going to get rid of. Mm -hmm. And from what I understand, certain terpenes d do tend to be correlated with certain cannabinoids. Does this happen by chance or does this happen um, due to kind of some of that, the, the enzymes that we talked about earlier in the conversation? Is there a reason um, chemically within the plant why terpenes might travel with particular cannabinoids? Yeah. So, um, so before the, the CBGA is, is produced in the plants, mm -hmm. the same raw materials that feeds into that CBGA system, feed into the production of terpenoids. Okay. And so to, to the extent that the, the plant's genetics uh, changes those upstream raw materials, then both cannabinoids and terpenoids can be affected in a, a way that's correlated. In general, there's lots of other systems that use some of those same raw raw materials and that might and it's maybe changes to those systems that are that cause it to be different in one plant than another but there are are correlations between which terpenes are present and uh which cannabinoids are present in in uh in reality i think how to phrase this um, those correlations are, are somewhat by chance. So there are genes that code for specific terpenoids, which if present, you get that terpenoid. And if not present, you don't. So in other words, it doesn't require an external stress to turn that on. Um, and those, those are independent. So they're independent genes from the cannabinoid genes. So you could have, um, just the presence or absence of genes controlling those, or you could also have effects from, like I said, the, the fact that the upstream uh, biochemistry may produce a different subset of raw materials for the plant to work with that affects both cannabinoids and terpenoids. In general, 
the genetics for the the production that are absolutely necessary to either be there or not to produce a compound or not those are uh independent as far as we can tell mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. okay and then i also want to um hear about the the aging process so once we go beyond um that you know once a plant is heated and, and i'm looking at your this graphic that you have um, mm-hmm. in your presentation where it has so thc or thcv can be converted to cbn or delta 8 thc uh so yeah can you talk more about kind of this this next phase that the aging process of the plant and what happens yeah absolutely so uh the biochemistry of the plant is producing the the this subset of the cannabinoids which are you know able to be produced by these enzymes the the thca synthase with slightly different inputs produces thcva instead of thca for example um those compounds are what are produced by the plant as the plant is heated we've already talked about the fact that acids can convert to neutrals but it's not 100 percent efficient there are some other compounds that are created likewise as it ages and exposed to air there's oxygen there's water um there's energy from the environment for from the temperature slowly other transformations take place so cannabinoids all this big group of closely related compounds have lots and lots of reactivity. They, they react to in lots of different ways. And over time, some of these ways start to build up. And so CBL, CBLA can have a cyclol acid and neutral. Those are basically uh, CBCA molecules that have through aging and it's generally an oxidation process, but it, they rearrange to have slightly different structures. So whereas CBCA, for example, has two rings in it, when it ages and converts to CBLA, it has three fused rings that are kind of complicated and give it a very different structure and make it bind and everything else very, very differently, even though it came from CBCA, doesn't behave much like CBCA. Um, with terpenes, the aging of terpenes mostly leads to oxidations at relatively consistent points. So, for example, caryophylline oxide is the oxidized form of beta caryophylline, which is a, a, a terpenoid that's in a lot of cannabis that is, it's a sesquiterpenoid, so it doesn't evaporate as quick as the monoterpenoids. Um, but beta caryophylline will produce caryophylline oxide, and the two behave very differently. Beta, uh, beta caryophylline, by the way, gives it a peppery, spicy flavor. Mm-hmm. And in fact, there's a lot of beta caryophylline produced by peppers, pepper plants. Uh, so not not uh, not the fruit peppers, but uh, pepper like you you know ground pepper that you sprinkle sprinkle on as a spice. A lot of that spiciness of black pepper is also beta caryophylline. Uh, they can v- convert to, to caryophylline oxide. It doesn't to a great extent. So most of the terpenoids are a little more stable than most of the cannabinoids. So the cannabinoids tend to be a little more reactive and produce more, um, more of these aging products that are often similar to just what you get when you heat. But in some cases, the distributions are different. Mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. Could we zoom in on CBN for a moment? Yeah. Because yeah. I was just reading some research that I think CBN is the new, the new compound that's known for its sedative effects or known for um, helping people fall asleep, making them drowsy. So I'm wondering, is the only way to activate the CBN in a cannabis plant through this, like how, how, do you, how do you scale that or how do you produce that in a manufacturing facility based yeah. on that it needs to be um, gone, go from its raw form and then it needs to be heated and then it needs to be aged? How can you mimic those, the, that, you know, that process in a supply facility to turn this into to medicine? Yeah, well, it's not just a supply facility at that point. Now you've got a, you're making chemical transformations. Mm -hmm. So you start with the plant producing THCA, then you heat that to form THC, and then you can heat it further and it's like under slightly different conditions, or there's, you can, in some cases, uh, use ultraviolet light exposure or just exposure to oxygen. But generally speaking, people will try various ways to convert then the THC to CBN. Uh, it does happen naturally over time, but it happens really, really slowly unless you provide the right conditions. So there is a process to take the THC and sometimes some processes it's still in the plant material. So you don't do the extraction until you convert it to, to CBN and other and other processes, they first extract it, and then once they get it, the THC relatively purified, then they do the conversion. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so it is a process. There's a number of different ways. It's mostly uh, with the right kind of heating, the right temperatures. You okay. can ma maximize your yield of CBN compared to other stuff. But it would be nearly impossible to purchase a, a flower at a dispensary and then somehow be able to smoke it later on and yield some sort of CBN compound from it. Um, well, it's not impossible, but you got to you you, ha you would have to know a recipe that works okay. to do that in the mm -hmm. flower. Uh, and I do know that lots of you know, again as a testing lab, we saw lots of people trying to do that. Um, several years ago before there were any known good methods. Now there's several known good methods that you can okay. probably look at, and I'm sure one of those would be uh, for converting in the plant material so you could just smoke it later, but you'd have to do it right and it would be a project. It's not, it's not easy to do. So generally speaking, um, over the course of a year, the amount of CBN that builds up so the, we measured CBN in these experiments that I described earlier. So over the course of the year in a garage in, in Sacramento at a 120 Fahrenheit in the summer and so on, hardly any CBN was formed. Mm, okay. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, I, I want to be respectful to your, to your time here. Um, so are, are, is there anything... Um, is there anything that you would like to, to leave our listeners with that we haven't covered today um, when it comes to, you know, these extremely fascinating concepts on, on the molecular structure of these cannabis compounds and terpenes? Yeah. So, so uh, overall, the terpenoids, other than evaporating, uh, you know, and, and going away, aren't changed particularly much by heating or raw or storage um, other than just being lost through evaporation and so on. 
the cannabinoids, there's very, very different uh, chemical compounds that are formed under different conditions, and those have very, very different effects. And I, I think one la last thing to, to point out is that whether you inhale it by smoking or vaporizing or dabbing or whatever, versus when you eat it, those are very different processes. When you smoke it, it goes into the lungs and your blood flow goes from the heart to the lungs to the heart to the brain. And so when you put something in your lungs, it goes into your bloodstream, and if it can get across the blood-brain barrier, which most cannabinoids and terpenes can, then it goes to your brain as that substance before it gets cycled down to the liver for metabolizing. If you eat something, especially things like cannabinoids and terpenoids, which are fatty or oily, they, get, they don't actually get absorbed until they get to the small intestine. So they have to make it through your stomach. And that's why there's a delay of, you know, well, if you've got a full stomach, it can be hours later that you suddenly feel the effects of cannabis that you've ingested. If you do it on an empty stomach, it's usually in the order of 20 to 40 minutes, but it's variable. It's biology. Um, but the, from the stomach or from the small intestine where those are absorbed, it goes through this lymph system and actually goes to the liver before it ever makes it into your bloodstream and the brain. And so when you eat can cannabis or cannabinoids, you, what you really are feeling is the effects of the first pass metabolite from your liver. When you inhale it, you're feeling the actual THC and stuff, your initial feelings. After that, it all becomes a mix anyways, because that blood circuit, your, your blood circulates really, really quickly. Um, so, Depending on what you want, if you want something to last long, eating it may be beneficial because the, the time it takes for your body to get rid of the stuff that you've eaten is much longer, so the effects last for many hours. If you inhale it, it generally only lasts for an hour to two, um, but it's more intense sometimes. So there, and unfortunately, because of the prohibition, we don't have a lot of good data from human studies about what and why, uh, but that's coming, and we are we're understanding more and more. But you're still kind of if you're if you're trying to to get yourself some relief from some kind of sy uh, symptom, we all behave a little differently. All of our proteins are a little different from each other, and so we react to the same compounds, the THC or something, a little bit different than than each other. And so the best thing is to do is to try something that maybe you've got an inkling would work because you heard it worked for somebody else for the same thing or because you read that it's good for that. Try it. Try small amounts first. Add to that a little bit at a time. So we say start low, titrate slow. Um, and if you recognize negative symptoms, just stop and, and try to talk to somebody about it. In general, though, I always try to make this claim, find a doctor that you can consult about the use of cannabis and how it might affect you uh, before you start, stop, or alter any medication or, or, uh, or you know, supplement that you might be taking. There are all kinds of possibilities. One, of, one thing I can put out there is uh, CBD in particular binds to an enzyme uh, called cytochrome P450 and uh, fatty, uh, fatty acid acylhydrolase. Those are two of the enzymes in the liver that, that metabolize most of the drugs that we take that are pharmaceuticals. In fact, 
anything with fatty chains on it, more or less. And because CBD binds to those enzymes, sometimes medications that you're taking will actually build up to higher levels because your liver is not metabolizing them as efficiently. So in particular, if you're on any other medications, you want to be careful and make sure that your physician is directing this to the degree that you can. Wow. Wow. Great insight and great PSA for our listeners. Right. <laughs> Find a doctor <laughs> and proceed with caution when using edibles. Yeah. So cool. Well, thank you so much. This has been so illuminating. And yeah, these, these are such great topics. So um, thank you so much for coming on and sharing all of your, your knowledge and your wisdom on this plant cool. with us. Thank you very much for inviting me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. It will help other people find us. Cannabis Science Today is so generously supported by the Agricultural Genomics Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to educating the public on scientific research findings on cannabis. If you're interested in donating to this cause or sponsoring an episode of this podcast, where we research a scientific research question or theme of your choice, please contact us through agriculturalgenomics.org.